If you have your Bibles, turn to me, turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Last week, I began a series talking about all the places, especially in the New Testament, where the phrase one another appears. I'm convinced the greatest witness the body of Christ can be to an unbelieving world is when we are together, is when we are one. Last week, we talked about being members of one another. Today I want to talk to you from Romans chapter 15 about being like-minded. Romans chapter 15, I'll begin reading in verse number 5. Now may the God of peace, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, our text reminds us that we're to be like-minded toward one another. It's become clear to me one of Satan's primary strategies to combat the church is to get the church to combat one another. One thing I find in reading through the New Testament that's interesting to me is that the New Testament outlines as, the, as, as our faith begins to become established and then the church grows. It outlines the victory that God's people experience. It outlines the tremendous growth. We see thousands being converted and saved in one instance, in, in, in many single instances. The name of Jesus Christ is proclaimed everywhere. And the New Testament doesn't hide that the early church had issues, that there were conflicts. Acts chapter 6, there was a conflict over the treatment of widows that had to be resolved. Acts chapter 9, there was a conflict that arose over this new convert that came around called Saul, as people were trying to make it clear to the church leaders at that time, don't you remember who this Saul was? Can we trust him? Acts chapter 11, there was conflict over Peter winning a Gentile to Christ, and the church at Jerusalem had an issue with that. In Acts chapter 15, there's a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over Barnabas's nephew, John Mark. And then in Galatians, there's that rather famous issue or conflict where Paul got in Peter's face because when the Jewish church leaders weren't around, he had no problem eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. But when the leaders from Jerusalem, who were mainly Jewish, came to Galatia, all of a sudden Peter was like, well, no, 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 I'm not going to mix with them. And Paul rightly got in Peter's face. When you get a number of people together, how many know challenges and differences arise? This is where God's people need to work 
to live together. And yes, live together. Because too many people have the idea or have the mindset, well, if I can't get along, I'll just kind of stay away. That's not an option because we are part of the body of Christ. As we said last week, we are members of one another. And we're to live together in unity as a sign to a world of what Jesus' power really can do. The world would love to find the formula for how can we bring unity to a divided nation? How can we bring unity to a divided world? I have the formula. His name is Jesus. Because when you get people together, stuff happens. Stuff, that's a Greek word, stuff. And yet we have Jesus praying in John chapter 17, verse number 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, through their word, that they all may be one as father, you are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The lost need to see that Jesus is God's answer to their lives. And here in this verse, Jesus is praying one main way they're going to see that is when his people are one. A type of depth and unity that mimics what Jesus and the Father had going on. Now, how can we deal with one another when these things come up? How can we address issues when things get strained. Oh, but pastor, when you're all walking in the spirit and we're all following the Holy Ghost, nothing ever gets on anyone's nerves, right? Nobody better say amen to that. So if someone offends you or someone gets on your nerves, again, we're talking about some other church right now. We're not going to talk about ours. But if someone were to offend you, what are we supposed to do? Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 said, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. When someone says something to you that offends you or does something that hurts you, the first step that I see throughout Scripture is to be able to search my heart, to be able to search my being, to be able to search my growth, and determine if this offense is one I can let go. Because you see, our culture today is one that if I crumple up a piece of paper, if I don't do it right, I'm going to offend somebody. We get offended at everything. Every word is offensive to someone. Basically, if I were to spend my whole day apologizing to everybody I offended, I'd spend my whole day apologizing. Now, this balance here, there are real offenses that we need to avoid and need to understand what our brothers and sisters especially are going through. But since breathing, it seems to me, has become offensive to some, being offended seems that it's losing almost its value when real offenses and real issues need to be addressed. If someone offends you, one of the first things I need to do is see if I can move past it. And that needs to be considered. Not every offense requires a Supreme Court trial. Now you get to make this call. No one can make that for you. 
But wisdom suggests that I consider, can I just move past it? First Peter chapter 4, echoing from Proverbs 17. And above all things, have fervent love one for another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's option one. Now, if someone has offended you and you're not able to look past it, I want you to know God's not upset. Because he provided for us a mechanism by which we can then address that particular situation. If someone has offended you and you're not able to look past it, option two is to meet with that person and discuss it. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. To me, one of the most amazing words in that scripture is the word alone. Don't tell your best friend. Don't tell your prayer partner. Don't tell sister busybody. Don't tell brother scuttlebutt. Don't mention it in prayer meeting. Tell him or her alone. It took me a while to come up with that name, Sister Busybody and Brother Scuttlebutt. I got to admit that. I played with a lot of different variations on that. Yeah, that's right. Brother Scuttlebutt, Brother Busybody, Sister Scuttlebutt. The whole thing, you get my point. We go to the person alone. Talk to the person. This isn't about, tr- now some will say, but how do I know, how can I trust whether or not that person is going to receive me? This isn't about trusting the person. This is about trusting that when Jesus gives us instructions on what to do, I may not trust the person, but I trust Jesus. He gives me something to do. I'm going to follow his ways. Amen. Do we believe his ways are best? Amen. If the brother or sister receives you, matter is settled. Never again to be shared with anyone else, and you have restored fellowship. But if they don't receive you, because that can happen. Option three says in Matthew chapter 18, verse number 16, to meet with the person and two or three witnesses. The scripture says, but if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now the key word there in that scripture for me is the word witnesses. The goal here is to basically repeat the effort that was made in the private meeting. But it says you're to take two or three witnesses, not two or three allies. Not two or three of your buddies so that the bunch of you can gang up on this person that you have an issue with. This is not to create this is not the Bible way of creating an intervention. These witnesses should be mature, they should be spiritual, they should be believers. Galatians chapter 6 verse number 1 says, "Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted." How many know coming to someone to try to correct them with an attitude doesn't yield much? Well, I'm going to come and and address this because you hurt me and I need to straighten you out because obviously you got issues. Yeah, I'm going to receive that person real easy. Spirit of gentleness, 
understanding that the mistakes other people made, I am completely capable of making all on my own. I deeply believe that over 90% of the issues that we deal with in the body of Christ could be addressed by option one and two. If we would learn to come to one another directly and deal with it that way and then deal with it with one or two witnesses. But Jesus does provide another step. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. And no offense to anybody here if you're a tax collector. But you need to understand what tax collectors were back in Bible days. Now let's be clear. That last step is a rare step. And it's a drastic one. I have in my mind the situations that would warrant that. And there are very, very few. But this is taken. But if things are taken to this level, it says the person doesn't receive counsel. The scripture says we're to treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, when I look at things, I'm often looking at the perspective and the context in which something is said. Also looking at who's talking. Let me be clear, and I think you'll agree. If I said that I'm going to value somebody as much as a jar, a, a, a plain jar of spaghetti sauce from the supermarket, that would be very different than one of you amazing Italian cooks saying I'd prefer a can or jar of sauce over homemade. Your context is different than mine. It'd be different if I told you I don't care for chocolate ice cream. Then you see my sons who've just kind of perked up here because they love chocolate ice cream. The perspective of the person speaking makes a difference. Who's speaking here? Jesus is. Jesus is saying, I want you to treat them like a heathen. How did Jesus treat heathens? He loved them. He fellowshiped with them. He cared for them. He protected them from the religious elite, and he died for them. I don't believe for a minute this scripture is about a process by which we can excommunicate someone and forget they even breathe and walk the face of the earth. Jesus is saying, treat them like a heathen. Oh, and by the way, the way I treat heathens is I care for them, and love them. When it comes to quarrels we have in the body, where do these quarrels come from? I see some of the skirmishes we get into and the ones that we unfortunately play out in the public square on social media. I get so many posts directed at me, what do you think about this? Or what about that? Or what did think about what this person said and if you've ever sent me one like that you know what my answer is I won't answer I'm not going to get into it where do they come from 
James chapter 4, verse number 1, the apostle said, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members, you lust and do not have, you murder and and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Most of the issues that we deal with, and let's just be honest about it, they come from being self-centered. They come from being selfish. They come from the flesh. Because when we're called and we do so to walk in the spirit, as Galatians 5.16 says, we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But you don't understand, when they said something, I just had to tell them off. Tell me the Holy Ghost told you to do that. I'm trying to find a scripture where the Holy Ghost tells somebody to tell somebody else off. Paul did was get in Peter's face in Galatians to bring him back to a right place and to defend the, the, the Gentile Christians who were there. We see later in the book of Acts, obviously, Paul and Peter got on the same page and they were able to resolve the difference. But this notion that I have to get my opinion out there, really? We need more believers who will decide to walk in the spirit. Now, what kind of living leads to a spirit-filled life? Ephesians chapter 4. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, to the churches at Ephesus, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. We are commanded to watch what we say. We are commanded to watch what we communicate. We are commanded that the things that should come out of us in any form should be good things, edifying things. And that last part is often missed, things that impart grace. But they deserve to be taken down. That's where the grace comes in. We give them what they don't deserve like we get what we don't deserve. We impart grace. But pastor, you don't understand. They made me so angry. Ephesians 4 verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I understand we get angry sometimes. Although... From my observation over the last few years, I wish it was only sometimes. It just seems that people are angry all the time. But we're to deal with it. What did Paul tell the church at Corinth? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And even when we are dealing with it, we are aware that everything we think and everything we feel does not have to exit us in spoken word, because then he turns to, from wrath and anger and bitterness to evil speaking. But you don't understand the hurt that I'm feeling, Pastor. How do I get past that bitterness? Verse 32 of Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. 
a bunch of one another's right there. Paul ends this chapter by saying, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, which essentially means demonstrating with words and action that you care. Forgiving one another. And the measuring stick for extending this forgiveness is the forgiveness that you were extended by Jesus Christ. How many know or understand the depth of how much Jesus has forgiven you? How many know where we'd be without his forgiveness? Completely lost. And that yet Jesus said, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That's the measuring stick. That's the standard. That's the template, if you will, for extending forgiveness to others. Now, I need to be clear here because this gets out of balance way too often. The effort of extending forgiveness is about you. It's not about what they did. It's about not letting bitterness take a stronghold in you. May they have to pay consequences for what they did? Absolutely. But one of those consequences of the offense shouldn't be that you live a life of bitterness and anger. God can set you free. He is a deliverer today that can bring you to a place where your heart is filled with joy and peace. This is how it leads us to being like-minded thinking about each other on an even plane. So I want to close today with some hard questions. First, if there's someone who has offended you in some serious way, it needs to be resolved. If no other place resolved in your heart, have you made an effort to go talk to them? to face it and try and resolve it? Tough question. Second, and I need to look down when I say this because otherwise you're going to accuse me of looking at you. <laughs> Are you someone that has a sharp tongue that tends to hurt and tear other people apart. I urge you to consider that and perhaps repent of that and ask God to replace those words with uplifting words. I'm going to keep looking down for a while. <laughs> Third, is there someone you're bitter against whom you've not forgiven or something for something they've done, whether it was on purpose or unintentionally. We all know the phrase, how many know bitterness won't hurt them? It's you taking the poison, not them. No matter what the person has done against you, and no matter how much it hurts, you are too valuable to Jesus to live a life in bitterness. And God's answer to that bitterness is forgiveness. Fourth, do we make a conscious effort at home, at work, 
or in the church to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, and loving. I think we'd all agree it's rough out there. It's really rough out there. It should not be rough in here. It should not be rough among God's people. We as God's people, his body, need to make our homes, need to make our churches, need to make our fellowships, sanctuaries where we can deal with some of these issues. Sanctuaries from the hardness and the crudeness and the meanness of the world that we walk in each and every day. We need to be people who put away our bad tempers and our seething anger and our evil speaking and malice and replacing it with kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. Walking in love wherever we go. But, Pastor, what you're talking is a fantasy. No, it's the Christian way. It's what we were born again into a power that makes all things possible, a power that allows you to walk through this world and not have to bow and become in bondage to every word and every attitude and everything that everyone around you does. You and I have the ability to rise above anything and say, Jesus, I'm going to walk with you and no one's going to get in my way. But we're human. Y'all are human, right? If you're not human, please, for the time being, keep it to yourself. But we're all human. And I'm thankful for the scriptures that Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the other writers provided for us to deal with the fact that we're human. We need one another, church. We're part of one another. We're members of one another. And being like-minded isn't having one mind that we discount our differences and what makes each of us special. It's about taking the same attitude. What was one of the parables that Jesus talked about where he criticized the Pharisees who they would keep the special seats in the sanctuary for special people who, by and large, contributed a lot to the sanctuary of the temple. Yet other people had to kind of sit over here because they weren't as important financially to the existence of their fellowship. We're encouraged that we treat everyone with the same mind, like-minded no matter who you are, like-minded no matter how much we've long... uh, how long we've known each other, like-minded no matter what is going on. We have a basic level of Christian power and love that everybody gets. That's why it's been so amazing here. People will walk in. I've heard it said to many a newcomer over the last year and a half that I've been here. They'll come in and back when we were having fellowships, they'll come in and say, it's like I'm, I'm home. Everyone treats me like they've known me forever. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how Christianity is supposed to work. How attractive would that be to the unbelieving world where they can go someplace and feel loved and not measured, where they could feel forgiven and not judged? So may God help us.
May God help us to live in that unity and be like-minded with one another. Stand with me, please.